0: If you really, you could talk about lancing oh, your hangman.
1: Yeah, we're not. I yeah, I don't. That that was. That's your mini episode. That was more horrific than going behind the dumpster at Winkies. Wow, it was, man. It was really bad. It's
0: such it, a, was, it really is such a Jack Nance injury. Yeah, no,
1: I, I'm 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 constantly worried I'm going to contract some sort of blood infection and die in, in my sleep. Uh, fortunately, I did not get the injury uh, at a donut shop. So, but but, I didn't
0: even know that could happen. It's just such it's so it's it sounds terrible. But yeah, I didn't know that that was even something that could like occur. Yeah, it's very weird. If you
2: wake up and you hear your wife talking in Spanish, that's probably a good sign that you need to get to an ER right away. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I think I think that's right. Okay, so the next thing about Mulholland Drive that I want to talk about, when the movie was released on DVD for the first time, uh, Studio Canal, who I guess was releasing it, asked David Lynch to come up with 10 clues to the movie, which is really weird that he would ever agree to do this, but he did. Uh, and they're all kind of little interesting points, and so I'm going to go through them, and I'm going to read them, and then we'll just take your reactions to them. Everybody ready? Yes. Sure. Okay. All right, so number 1. Pay particular attention to the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits.
3: What? Before the credits? Before the but credits. Isn't before the, the credits, credits are the isn't first thing jitterbug scene? Alan Sarday presents is the very first thing you see.
0: I thought it was the jitterbug sequence in the the pillow. That's
1: right. Jeff Jeff's the winner. Those are possibly but the They're two. not
3: before the credits.
2: They are. I, I'm I'm with Ken. I don't think they are. I, I think it's credits. Then you start seeing jitterbugging and red and yellow bedding and street signs and cars no, I driving think, in the dark. I think it's
0: like I think I think it's the jitterbug, and then you have this weird cut to like the pillow. Then it goes into darkness into the pillow, and then you have Elaine Sardé in like the beginning of it. Maybe you came in late for your last. No, screening. I
3: literally just queued it up on my TV. I'm yeah, queuing it up I, on my I, iPad I mean,
1: now. Yeah, I, I mean I watched oh, so, it last. So weekend. Ken, Ken, what? Yeah. what a, Ken what happens after the 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 pillow scene?
3: All right, Hang on, I just I just rewound. So the very first image of the film is Alain Sarde presents. Yes. Um, but a, a a le film a le film Alain Sarde production. A film by David Lynch. Those are credits to my mind, but perhaps they're right. not the yes. credits, right? Um, and then there is the jitterbug. Um, and then presumably the bed sheets. Fast forwarding through the jitterbug. There's the grins of Betty and the uh, old folks, bed sheets and heavy breathing. Then are there more credits? Then there's then there's a sign that says Mulholland Drive, and there's all the stuff. Okay, yes. Then there are names of actors superimposed over right. the car. Over right. I think that's drive. what it means. So by that's the what it means okay. by credits. Okay. okay, all right, fine, all right, fair enough. Proceed. So those those two clues are either the grinning rictus uh, on the face of the old folks with Betty and the sheets and pillow, or uh, the jitterbug and the sheets or whatever. Well, I, Jr., you had told us you wanted to talk about
2: the ten clues, and you had told us that because. She- Because you told us you wanted it to be spontaneous, you didn't want us to read them if we hadn't, so I didn't read them. I had no idea that they came from David Lynch. But if David Lynch is telling me something is a clue, I know that's 100% bullshit and nothing on this list is a clue to anything. (laughs) So what, what you're doing is you're giving me the ability to eliminate possibilities that these items on this list might have any significance whatsoever this is this is a list of Isn't red herrings is one 100%. Okay. <laughs> so this that may be red the look. red in the red and yellow bedding that all the all the red and yellow you know red yellow and green in Aunt uh, in Aunt Jane or Aunt whoever's apartment Aunt Ruth's apartment that that the red stands for the red herring I finally figured out you can play the colors theme we're now done with colors it's all red herring is what it means
4: Come on, Jr. Let's go Miami. <laughs> colors, 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 colors,
3: colors, colors, Well, we learned from Laura Herring that uh, Betty's aunt has beautiful red hair. Ing.
1: There you go. There. That's true. Okay. We're that's all right. True. Ken I, I, and we when we we do we do see her in the apartment after the blue box disappears. Yeah, when she comes into that room, that that's her aunt with the red hair, presumably.
0: I think that isn't there. Okay, so this is from like the same part of my brain where it's like I have like. Uh, you know, like urban legends and conspiracy theories about films, including like, you know, the appearance of the ghost in three men and a baby or whatever. Uh, But um, is not don't they yell out Betty during the jitterbug sequence? Isn't that one thing? Do you guys remember that? Uh, Maybe. That's one thing I think I remember. I don't know if it's true or not, but like when you, over the music, you hear someone yell out like Betty or something like that. So
3: my captions aren't picking it up, but I, but I believe you. Yes. Alright, we're gonna
1: move we're gonna move to number two. Clue number two. Notice appearances of the red lampshade. So the first time it appears is at the end of that uh like phone tree chain of calls in in the middle of the kind of Byzantine conspiracy, and the call is not answered. And that's the first time it appears. The second time it appears is when Diane Selwyn wakes up and thinks of Camilla, the phone by the red lampshade is her apparently her own telephone. Wow, so I heard the thunder. Where was that? Athens. (laughs) Nice. Wow.
3: That's that was actual thunder from outside your window.
1: Yeah, it was really loud. Oh, wow. Came out of nowhere. So that so the second time we see the lampshade is when she picks up the call and she's invited to the party by Camilla. And apparently there's also a red lampshade in the corner shop at Pink's. That's the hot dog place where Joe the Hitman goes. And apparently there's a red lampshade visible at Havenhurst on the first floor above aunt Ruth's apartment.
0: Okay. And I'm, I'm with Kyle that I, I think these clues are a mixture of like actual genuinely helpful information and then red herrings or MacGuffins or whatever. And yeah. I think this red lab shaped thing always struck me as a little bit of a red herring.
2: <laughs> but, but if we're going to talk about the phones, I do have to say having touched upon this, we have and this goes back to ken's point about the you know the technology we have a yellow rotary phone hanging on a green wall with a visible red wire like come on
3: i'm not the only one seeing this right is that the one with the halo light behind it the the ring the i i think it may be yeah ring? yeah, yeah. It's such a weird t- design choice we're going to light this rotary phone with this halo lamp for some reason it looks like you would burn your hand on the bulb going to pick it up every time
1: Anything else in the red lampshades?
3: I never remember getting okay. anything from this.
1: Cause I remember thinking about all of
0: this very intensely in like two early 2002 or whenever the hell the DVD came out. And then, yeah, I, I, I remember this was something that led me nowhere. I remember none of this, <laughs> but I, but I
1: believe you. Right. Well, I think one interpretation is that when the series of calls happen and the the phone is not answered at the red lampshade, uh, it's the girl is still missing, missing. And so this is when Diane was holing out in her apartment for a period of time. And then, but we don't know that until we see that it is in fact her red lampshade in the latter part of the movie where she gets the invitation. I mean, it's pretty pretty straightforward, but probably not that illuminating. Okay. Um, The the third clue, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? And this is pretty straightforward. It's a Sylvia North story, and there are two different versions of it. There's one that's directed by Adam Kesher in the first part of the movie, where Camilla Rhodes is the short-haired blonde woman uh, that we see again at the party. Uh, And it's also mentioned at the dinner party, where Bob Brooker is described as the director of... The Sylvia North story, and that Camilla, Camilla, and uh, was in it, and that's where Diane met Camilla. So yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it's not really much of a clue, I don't think.
2: Well, but it, if if y'all are right, and and it is her taking facts from reality that are intruding upon her psychic fugue state, her attempt to reconstruct it. At- if if there is this movie in reality, and then there is this movie in her fantasy, and in her fantasy, I mean I, that that I think actually is a meaningful clue in support of the position yeah. y'all are taking. So I, I'll I'll buy that. That's meaningful information.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it's like whatever different versions of the same, you know, reason why she didn't get the part. You know, like for the, the for the same movie, the Sylvia North story. In either one, you know, Betty or Diane doesn't get the part. And one, it's because you know. And Camilla Rhodes, and yeah, one has the conspiracy explaining for it, the other is just because, you know... Either Camilla's a better actress or whatever. So right. yeah, that was pretty straightforward. I agree.
3: I mean, but helpful. Sylvia North is more of a Twin Peaks name than a Mulholland Drive name. I mean, uh, the Betty yeah. character is from the North; she's from Ontario. But uh, um, Sylvia is from the Latin for forest, uh, and the internet tells me the name comes from a, a word for spirit of the wood. So you know, a, a northern spirit of the woods is a very Twin Peaksy sort of a thing. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, number four, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. <laughs> on Holland Drive, you mean? Yeah. Duh. Yep. Yeah, right, right. I mean, yeah, so I think that uh, what's pretty cool is the what are you doing, we don't stop here, uh, which is what Rita says in the beginning of the movie, and then it's what Diane says when they she uh, comes up on the secret passageway uh, where Camilla's been waiting for her, the idea being that, in the first part of the movie, that is Diane recreating the story uh, that to try to find redemption for the fact that she called out a hit on her ex-girlfriend.
2: But while we're talking about that particular part, I do want to mention yeah. – um, th- anybody else notice that the front of the fire truck, the
3: number of the fire truck is 119? Yeah, that's amazing that you caught that. I definitely did not, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, that that's
1: fantastic. Well, actually, since this is the, – the clue is literally Mulholland Drive um, – Jeff, you had something that you wanted to to read about the place, I think.
0: Just just a little bit, yeah. I mean, you know, sure. um, there's. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's an interesting. Have you any? If has everyone? Has anyone driven down Mulholland Drive?
1: I have not. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah.
0: so. Can, can you? Yeah, I mean, it's. I went basically. I think because of the movie, my first time uh, in L.A., and I went at night, and it is the place where. I think it goes for kind of 50 miles along the mountains here, but it is the road along which you can get those great views of LA and the, I guess, San Fernando Valley that we're all familiar with from every single movie. Um, but it's also, and I think Lynch lives off Mulholland Drive, uh, and it's named after William Mulholland, who, Brought water to LA and kind of made LA possible. And also it was kind of, you know, I think a lot of the, the business of Chinatown is, is based on William Mulholland's character, but it's a, it, it's a fascinating road. Uh, but also very creepy and dark. <laughs> uh, and the one time I went up there, we saw a coyote, uh, which I think really creeped me out when we were getting out of the car to look around at the, at the valley. We saw a coyote run away, but I was going to read you guys. This is from an essay by the British film writer, David Thompson. uh, And he published a book in 1997 called Beneath Mulholland thoughts on Hollywood and its ghosts. And just the, the, I'm going to read the final two paragraphs of um, his essay Beneath Mulholland, which was completed a couple of years before I think Lynch uh, shot the pilot for Mulholland drive. Um, The road is like a location in a film chosen and dressed for its magnificent vantage and for the juxtaposition juxtaposition of inane civilization in a dangerous wilderness. This is where the desert touches Gucci and Mercedes, where pet chihuahuas can be eaten by coyotes. Mulholland has buildings that can topple into the canyons. The John Lautner chemosphere stands on one concrete stem, and there is a tennis court on stilts. It has rich homes that might be descended on at night by anarchists, murderers, or nightmare Apaches. There's even a Manson Avenue that runs off Mulholland you have to wonder whether it was scripted tribute or magical impromptu. Mulholland is a pin-up and an idea. It has Brancusi's in some groomed gardens and beer bottles shattered from target practice a few miles farther on. Its function is to embody that contrast. It's a highway made for narcissism and envy, an example of privilege, luxury, and airy superiority that whispers, look at me, take me if you can. The road, the drive, the highway all thrill to the way man has commanded natural power and beauty here and turned them into a property or a story that Hollywood at the Eastern end letters 50 feet high is a title, a caption. It's there to tell us the landscape is a kept woman as well as collapsing topography. And the road is called Mulholland drive so that, you know, you should be wary of anyone on foot.
1: That's really cool. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, this this movie is David Lynch's L.A. story, oh, sure, right? And uh, it, the history of Los Angeles is is pretty fascinating, and I highly recommend if you ever get a chance to read the great historian Cary McWilliams, California: The Great Exception, and he he talks about and there the 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 legacy or rather the the inception of L.A. is absurd. Uh, there's no reason why people should live there. There's no water. No, none, no water whatsoever. And the only reason people migrated to LA is through, uh, essentially hucksterism. You know, these land speculators bought up the land and then advertised on the East and the Midwest saying that this was the land of plenty. And there was no substance whatsoever to the idea that this was a good place to settle and live because there's no water. There's literally no water. Uh, it, the, the climate's nice. Uh, the land, at least in LA, isn't particularly good for farming, but there there's better farmland in the surrounding valleys. Uh, but, the entire city was sort of premised on artifice uh, and, and something made up. And, of course, uh, Mike Davis has a, a great book called City of Quartz. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, about, about the you know, more, more modern history of, of Los Angeles. But it's a really um, troubled place. I'm entirely biased living in the north. Screw those people. They don't have any water. It's our water. But, you know, um, we're still one state.
2: And and so and, and that, that highlights the irony of the fact that when they when they took an NBA team from Minnesota, the land of ten thousand lakes, they <laughs> kept the name lakers which is the dumbest kept sports name short of the utah jazz i was gonna say second dumbest it is, it is absolutely <laughs>
3: second to utah jazz
2: it is second but it is still the second dumbest and and people don't comment on it nearly enough like what what the hell lake do you think it is that is being talked about people don't even get that i mean i say this as an alumnus of clayton state university whose sports mascot is the lakers We've got a damn lake on the Clayton State University campus. That is more than Los Angeles can claim.
3: Yeah. I mean, don't forget the NBA is really loath to change names for reasons I cannot ever fathom. Uh, But that means that briefly there was a – well, no, there still are – the Memphis Grizzlies, which is also ridiculous. They were the Vancouver Grizzlies. But the but the uh the whatever it is
2: in Oklahoma City, whatever they are, isn't whatever they were when they were in Charlotte or Birmingham
3: or New Orleans or wherever the hell they were. Uh, well, they were the Seattle Supersonics and now they're the Oklahoma City whatever. Thunder. Um, whatever. But, but uh, that's it. They're they not, they're are, they not the same
2: noise. they're not the same dumb thing they were before.
3: That's true. It's true. But Memphis Grizzlies is it's pretty bad.
1: All right, so the next clue, number five, who gives a key and why?
3: That's Kyle's department.
2: Yeah. I'm I I have given you my theory on that.
1: Right, right. So uh, the list of keys and presenters of keys, Coco uh, gives the key for Aunt Ruth's apartment to Betty uh, in order to enter the dream world. Uh, there's possibly a clue. And of course, the hitman has the the standard looking blue key uh, that's going to confirm that the deal is done. Uh, and then there's also the weird key that fits into the blue box yeah
2: and the great northern key that opens the door
1: into the nether world yeah. yeah right and actually when you think about it though the only person who actually gives a key is coco all the other keys appear but the hitman never we never see him give a key to anybody the the blue key for the box is never presented or given to anybody so if the clue is that this key is from to Betty to enter the dream world. And maybe that's the clue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or, but I mean, it does seem like they all really distinctly usher in these kind of irrevocable points of change in the film, Right. you know, like, uh, like, yes. like going into the apartment uh, and then finding it at club silencio, which is really the kind of whatever sort of like emotional, I guess, kind of climax of the film. And then sort of, it, it it's where the first, story unravels you know uh and then the key is being this like you know the hitman says like once i give you that key or you take it you can't go back you know i mean it's it's a done deal you know so it's um it does seem like the keys really serve to like it's these distinct dividing lines within the, the the film
2: well and it also it also makes it interesting though that you have two you have two uh keyless entries you know you've got rita running down the mountain and taking advantage of the fact that that uh, she you know aunt ruth is leaving the apartment she's able to sneak in the door while they're loading up the the car and then you have them going to the Diane's apartment and finding out she's changed apartments, and they they can't get in. The door's locked. No one will come come to the door, and so they got to go in the window. So it, it is kind of interesting that you do have these two very in, important entries um, that that change things dramatically where people don't have keys.
3: Yeah. Uh, first of all, who switches apartments with right. someone else? Nobody does <laughs> right. that. Right. She's no. not here. We traded yeah. apartments. That's not a right. thing. It's right. <laughs> very strange to me. Um,
1: yeah, no, people don't, don't trade apartments. doesn't happen. That, that doesn't make any but, sense. But
3: I think it's interesting that Ann Miller, who plays Coco, right, uh, in what I'm. Uh, treating as reality is Adam's mom, who is particularly nasty to Diane when she meets her in that sort of humiliation scene. And so in the delusion fantasy, whatever, first two-thirds of the movie, of course, Betty adopts her as her own mother figure, right? She's, she's not humiliated Adam enough. She has to steal his mom as well by making her the matriarch in this sort of Tales of the City-esque complex uh, that she's in in L.A. There's also that old notion from uh, what is it psychology or whatever that uh, you forget things more easily when you walk through a door like if you have a to-do list or whatever or something on your mind, you're more likely to forget it when you walk through a doorway because your brain all- automatically processes that as a transition into some new thing. Um, so I like the idea that um, you know these this, the key the one key giver is the significant uh, figure.
1: Number six. Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. So, starting with the robe, we've got Roots, like a uh, purple, extravagant robe uh, that has the note on it for Betty using the nickname Bitsy, which is weird. And Betty gives that to cover Rita. But although it was meant for Betty, only Rita wears it. Betty never happens to put it on. So, you know, one interpretation is that when you see these clues, you start to get the sense that Diane envied Camilla because she was enjoying the success that Diane had wanted and was dreaming of having and never got when she came to Hollywood. Let's see, the next robe is a red robe with a black collar uh, that Rita wears uh, when she's rehearsing the scene with Betty. And at, while she's rehearsing the scene, which by the way, uh, is terrible, right? <laughs> when she rehearses this, Betty rehearses this re- scene with uh, Rita. It's just—it's almost impossible to watch, especially yeah, compared really to the It's really fun,
3: bad acting. Um, it just it seems is. like they don't take it seriously, right? Yeah. They're just like ha ha ha. Here's the scene, ha ha ha. Acting is a lark or whatever. And then she goes into the audition. And one way to say it would be that she nails it. Another would be that she just takes it way over the top in the sexy direction with that, uh, bright orange George Hamilton lookalike. Right. She just, she defaults to sex kitten, um, which she does in some of her interactions with Rita later. Um, which I like the idea that Lynch was telling her to up the naivete and up the corniness and uh everything in her performance uh it makes sense too that she would be upping the sex kitten right because if this is her fantasy, um everybody desires her and she can get what she wants by just you know projecting sexuality everywhere.
1: God, that guy looked like a fucking pumpkin, yeah <laughs> yeah he's yeah he's, he's a goddamn so orange <laughs> uh. And then, and then uh, da- Diane is wearing a shabby white bathrobe when she's having right. flashbacks to her apartment. Um, I thought that I
0: thought all of these since it mentions the ashtray and the coffee cup. I always I thought this was like one of the least helpful clues, but I felt like they were all directing us since they're. It's like obviously there are other robes. There's lots of coffee cups. It's a David Lynch movie, yeah, exactly. But I felt like they, the yeah. the robe, the ashtrays, coffee cups seemed like all those were like referring to like the. Diane kind of dingy apartment, you know, sort of sequence at the end. Yeah. But and this is another one that's clues I remember not really helping me out much. This and the red lamp shape may be the least helpful.
2: Yeah, the coffee cup thing in particular is identifying the, if the coffee cups appearing in significant scenes in something David Lynch did. There's a coffee cup in every scene. By default, it would have to be in the significant ones because it's in all of them.
3: Right. Should we talk, too, about how the uh, people think that the Baudelamenti spitting out the very fine espresso is a direct sort of middle finger at um, uh, Twin Peaks obsessives, that people love Baudelamenti and they love coffee, and those are things they loved about Twin Peaks, and maybe they didn't take exactly what Lynch wanted away from the series. And so he created this character that he had a Baudelamenti play who just spits out espresso, just spits coffee everywhere.
1: What I found really disturbing about that scene is that you know he's he's being served a nice drink he specifically asked for a napkin and when he doesn't like the coffee instead of doing what i think any normal polite person would do which is take the napkin and put it up to your mouth (laughs) and kind of release it into the napkin in your hand in in a relatively you know not so offensive way instead he just dribbles it out Onto the napkin, but it's not even hitting the napkin. It's all over the table. It's probably on his shirt. It's so <laughs> disgusting and repulsive <laughs> to me. I thought, uh, and, and it was a great choice, right? Because uh, that's not the way you would spit a drink out. I think under those circumstances, um, unless you, because I mean, it's weird. Because if you wanted to be super offensive, he could spit it on somebody, but he didn't do that. He just like let it dribble and, out and, of his and mouth. And it's like he's trying to
0: get out. every single drop of it, like, out of his, like, completely.
3: Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's great. These these clues are so dumb, but I think we're getting good productive conversation out of them. So let's continue.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, apparently there's a cup of coffee that Diane – so she brews herself a cup of coffee in her apartment. uh, And apparently the cup is kind of like the ones at Winkie's. Um, And so maybe that's a reference to her being employed at a diner. Or, or, or she stole it from the diner because her life is bad, or her dream has incorporated these these aspects from her real life, and then that the cup changes to a glass of whiskey, uh, in the scene on the couch with Camilla. This clue is kind of um, bullshit, y'all. And th- it is kind of bullshit. I mean, like, what does it mean? It doesn't go anywhere. I mean, and then at the pool party, and this this is probably again back to the fire fire truck. Uh, she's sipping coffee from a cup that has SOS written on it.
0: Hmm. They just needed to get the 10 clues. Uh, apparently
1: it's this one just, but it's three clues <laughs> it's in <really> one, <laughs> but none of them really add up to anything. Well, this is good. Cause we were going to talk about this scene anyway, so we can do it now. Clue number seven. What is felt realized and gathered at the club silencio? This is just like a, this, it's like a, a,
0: a short essay prompt. This is great. Yeah, it
1: really is. No, it's that yeah, it, it, it directly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is your AP English exam. <laughs> um. uh,
3: yeah, I mean, the Silencio scene is is so marvelous anyway, um, and I, I think everybody should uh, should weigh in, but i I was so moved just this last time on DVD watching the um, jo- Joando, um, uh song. it's it's just it's really, really incredible uh, i I really felt like I was on the verge of tears, and I've seen this movie like half a dozen times. Yeah, have you guys?
0: Uh, well, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's a sort of deep kind of sorrow, and it reminds me more, you know, anything else of sort of the you know the scene at um, the roadhouse, uh, you know, after uh, Madeline has died, when everyone is sort of yeah, bar and, and the giant appears, and there's this kind of, and Julie Cruz is singing, and there's this, this kind of vibe in the air that it, that everyone kind of picks up on of this kind of shared sorrow and kind of despair that like it manifests itself in this song um and that's yeah i mean and it it seems to me like on some level the whatever you want to call the first two-thirds of the film you know wish fulfillment dream fantasy whatever that's coming to an end you know and i I think that's that's what's going on there but then there's also all the stuff with there is no band. <laughs> no. Uh, no, this, I is a, this is a, no, I bond. Uh, there's, this is a, this is an illusion. And then, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I, and I think, uh, yeah,
3: it's,
1: it's all fake. It's all fake. Yeah. Hollywood I mean, is if fake. If you were
3: going to show somebody five scenes from all of David Lynch's oeuvre, this in would order, be up there. Yeah. Right. I mean, it'd have to be one of the five.
1: Yeah. yeah. I love the blue lighting and flash lighting. It's so quintessentially David Lynch uh, in this scene. That's and my the, favorite part of it.
0: I'm not sure. Is this filmed at the same theater that the fireman sequences? In I mean, it sure looked like it. At? It sure
2: had that feel. Yeah. The balcony I believe it's, and all the, that. It's,
0: called, it's called the Tower Theater uh, in, it, in LA. and I, I believe it, it's the same place that they, the Club Silencio sequence and the fireman scenes were. I think it's the same theater, I believe. And the other thing I remember from last summer when uh, – betty and rita are getting seated you see another a, 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 you know another brunette and blonde you know pair of women seating there and they really it's not cheerily <laughs> but it, it really looks a lot like renette Pulaski um and laura palmer um they look like like look-alikes there and wow. like some people i remember last summer were saying that you know it was like the some Marvel cinematic universe type thing, this crossover. But I do feel like those actresses or extras, whatever were cast because they look like uh, Laura. It might've been a coincidence, but we all know those things don't exist in the world of David Lynch. So, yeah.
1: Well, except, I mean, you know, the, the sh- I've just, rec- occurs to me that the show, the TV show was, as it was originally was going to be an Audrey story, in right? in fact a twin peak spinoff, right? Audrey was going to move to LA. Is
3: fascinating.
1: And I have no idea why it, that didn't happen. I know it's crazy. It's, it's especially considering what
3: they ended up doing to poor Audrey. you know, Sherilyn right. Fenn is still angry at, about.
1: You mean you mean living a fantasy? <sighs> yeah, life
3: I guess in her yeah. own head. It's a it's a deeply depressing yeah. world. Um, should we talk about real life Club Silencio? Uh, because I have not been to Club Silencio in Paris, uh, inspired by this scene and you know, sort of masterminded by David Lynch. But I thought you said you had, Jeff. I have been there. Yeah. And what what can you tell us from your experience? Because I, I I did a lot of drinking cocktails around Paris and opted not to go uh, for a variety of reasons, and I and I now regret it. Uh, obviously, for purposes of this podcast, it was
0: it was it was great. I was there. I want to say it was probably it was in the fall, probably October two thousand twelve. And at the time, I was living in Oxford, and a friend of mine was working in Paris. Uh, he was living in New York at the time. It was working at one of the I can't remember which one. One of the big art fairs in Paris. And so I went over to visit him, uh, for the weekend and he got somehow passes to club silencio and we went, uh, and it's, you know, the, the things I remember about it, we got there late and it's, 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 you go into it and there's sort of, you go down from the street level down this big sort of iron staircase. I do think Lynch like designed the entire club, uh, In terms of, you know, this, the space. Um, I don't think he's involved with like the day to day running of it, but I do think he designed it. But you go down this corridor and there's probably three or four flights of stairs before you get to the club. And the amazing thing to me was that like somehow by the time you were on maybe the second flight of stairs, it was completely quiet, you know, and like the street level noise was gone. The club, you couldn't really hear at all. There's just a really distinct, it felt very silent, like about halfway down. And then, the club itself, um, it's uh, – I remember there's sort of – there was a smoking room at it, very David Lynch, and there were these sort of, I guess, sort of plastic – pipes that you would blow your, that would, there were ventilation, you know, like, like ventilation vents that look like kind of Lynchian trees. It almost looked like the, the arm in, um, uh, Twin Peaks to return these like weird spindly branching plastic trees that you would like blow smoke up into. And, uh, the other thing I remember is that, so my friend and I were there and I, it it was the most I've ever paid for a cocktail in my entire life was at club silencio. And I think it was something like, like 21, 22 euros at the time, which is probably close to like 30 bucks. And you know, whatever I, I got in free with this pass. And so I paid it, but it involved absinthe and it was lit on fire. So it did feel worth it to me, but it was still far and away the most I've ever paid for a cocktail anywhere. But the, the crazy thing was there was, there, there's several bars. It's not a very big club, but there's sort of this kind of space with very Lynchian kind of like furniture and this kind of sunken play, like sunken kind of like seating kind of area. And I think there was like a place, you know, there were definitely the kind of red curtains you'd expect. And there was a place for, I guess, bands to play or DJs to play. No one was really, I think there was a DJ playing when I was there, but we were standing in this dark kind of hallway and it is kind of, because you're in a space designed by David Lynch, there was something a little creepy about the vibes there. Um, and, especially, we got there early, there weren't that many people there. And by the time we left several hours later, it was much more crowded. It was less creepy. It was creepier when there was a few people there. But we were standing in this um, hallway, and we didn't think it led anywhere. It was very dark. And then all of a sudden, like, several people came out of it. And we, like, saw this light down the end of the hallway. And so, we go down there, and there's just, like, hidden at the end of this hallway, there's a screening room. And there was just a movie playing in there. Uh, and there was just, like, I don't know, probably, like, 15 or 20 seats in it, like a almost like a private kind of screening room. And we sat in there and watched, I think it was that movie called The Paperboy with like Nicole Kidman uh, and maybe Zach, is it Zach Efron in that? I mean, anyway. Is that the one where
1: she is? That the one where she pees
0: on a car? Yes, and we saw. I saw that scene. (laughs) No, I think
1: she. I I think there's a
0: jellyfish sting, and so she pees on the jellyfish. Someone, yeah. That scene actually was. I watched like we watched probably 15 minutes of the movie uh, in there, and then just wandered out. And it seemed like very few people were aware that if you went down this dark hallway, there was like a a private kind of screening room in there. So (laughs) you started
3: telling people if you go down that hallway, you can see Nicole Kidman pee.
0: Yeah, exactly. But it felt like this weird – I mean, because it was in this Lynchian space and you walk down this hallway and there's just this movie playing and it was – like I said, it. if I'd saw another part of the movie, it might have seemed less – you know, like something out of Blue Velvet, but as it was, I watched the twenty minutes of this movie right. in which
2: Nicole Kidman
0: peed on a jellyfish sting, and it felt right. subversive. Or right. Whatever. So, uh, but that was it. But the cocktail was very good, very expensive. But like I said, it it, it involved absinthe and fire, so I felt like that. Can was, I? Can, was worth and can, it.
2: I so. can I now throw in something utterly unrelated about absinthe and fire? Just just that I, my just my brain has put this together. Jr. I swear that you. And John Spears had a conversation about absinthe at the party at which our friend Travis set his face on fire on the back porch, and years later, Travis was downstairs in the gazebo in Florida underneath the back porch on which I recorded an episode (laughs) of this podcast with the three of you. When we could all hear the merrymakers.
1: Yes, yes. But was Travis either lighting his face on fire uh, or drinking absinthe?
2: No, on the first one. The second one, I couldn't guarantee he wasn't. He was drinking something, whether it was absinthe. I yeah, don't no. Know. When,
1: well, when we when that first incident happened, I, John Spears and I were probably talking about it and the fact that at the time, you know, genuine absinthe was not right. legal. Yeah, that's why States. I remember you had a conversation uh, about that it. actually yeah. contained wormwood. Yeah, but it, it is subsequently been legalized and i'm sure ken has a lot more to say about well, like coors beer
2: in georgia never... after
3: smoking the bandit Right, yeah. Uh, technically, it was never illegal. Um, it was just that things, um, drinks with a concentration of Thujone over a certain percentage were illegal, and everyone thought that absinthe had a percentage uh, higher than that. And it turns out even the traditional methods of um, distilling absinthe don't result in quantities of Thujone that high. It's just that the testing equipment was really bad back in the day. Um, so people think that absinthe was legalized. I don't think the law ever officially changed. It's just that um, Americans started making it and having it tested and realized that... Uh, um, and, and it, it's passed under the um, the fda rules and then uh, people started testing the traditional European absinthe and realized that oh yeah this would be fine too but so heavily regulated uh but not ever really officially illegal it's whatever. Uh, we're very proud out here that the first brand uh, to figure this all out was St. George spirits on Alameda.
0: So does the, ver- the versions you can get in the U S now, did they have wormwood or is do. that just kind of a moot point? They do. Okay. Yep.
1: Yep. And so, to, so, so what
0: to, was it that caused like Baudelaire to like hallucinate, right? Poetry. Was uh, that
1: not wormwood? Or was it was something- That was probably the laudanum. It was, was either, it laudanum. was either they were
0: taking
3: okay. a bunch of opiates or it was that they were drinking just obscene amounts of rot gut or it was impurities in the rot gut. So absinthe was easily um, faked up. Because it was you know strong tasting and bright green, and so you could mask a whole bunch of impurities, right, by adding a bunch of anise and sugar and stuff. That right. that That's whole thing with the, w- the right with the, the water yeah. and the sugar and dripping all that in, you you want to do that when you have sort of bad hooch, right? Um, so so the idea was uh, there would be all these bootleggers that would make this bullshit stuff, and they'd sell it to cafes. Cafes could make a bunch of money, right, because they weren't paying for the real stuff, and people would go blind. It's people go. Blind and hallucinate from uh, the heads and tails that you're meant to take out um, in distillation. When when people are bad at distilling, that's why moonshine makes people go blind. Right? There's chemicals in the heads of the distillate that you have to cut off when you're when you're um, cutting your distillate. Anyway,
0: so when you when you get absinthe now and they give you sort of the sugar and so forth, that's kind of more for effect than any. You know, it doesn't actually serve the purpose that it did in, say, the 19th century.
3: Yes, and also people learn to like it with water and sugar because, you know, that was, that's thought of as being the traditional sort of thing. But you, you certainly don't need it. Um, so... What I did um, because I, you know, was feeling guilty that uh, that I haven't actually been to Silencio is I started looking into the drinks uh, that, that have been served there over the years. Oh, and I should mention, Jeff, it makes sense that the club would have gotten a lot more crowded later in the evening. As I understand it famously, Silencio is members only every night until midnight, but the public can come in after midnight. Um, as a private club, it can keep these insane hours. And so people start uh, filtering in very, very late at night, which is obviously. And I think
0: that's, yeah, and I think. I was there, I think I probably got there at like 10.30 or 11 or something, and then we left at, I don't know, 1 or 2, I can't really remember. but Yeah, yeah. so that's well, yeah, perfect. Yeah, you
2: drank right? I mean, absinthe and-, and fire, no wonder you can't remember <laughs> the time you went home.
3: Right. So that's what I should have done, obviously. I should have just gone at twelve oh five or something, but um we had a lot of places to hit. Anyway, uh so I pulled up a piece from Flood magazine from August of twenty seventeen in which they asked Rob McCarty, um, of Club Silencio, um, to uh to provide some drink recipes. And this article is uh, within one of my drink-writing pet peeves, because the, the subhead says, the drink menu for your Twin Peaks viewing parties is now finalized. And let me be the first to tell you that that is a goddamn lie, because there's absolutely no way that anybody can make these drinks. Um, for the most part, I cannot make these drinks, and I have way, way, way too many spirits um, and ingredients for cocktails in my life and in my house. Um, so I'm telling you, nobody is making these drinks for their Twin Peaks viewing parties or or, uh, for, for any purpose at all at home. It's, it's lovely that they make these things, and it makes sense, right? They, they're charging 20-plus euros a drink um, for these drinks, uh, but you couldn't ever make them at home. So, like, one of them is a play on a Bloody Mary, and the base spirit is something called Sakura Muromachi Tomato Shu, a shochu-based tomato liqueur. You can't get that. Nobody has that. That's ridiculous. The, the second one um, includes two teaspoons of perfumed simple syrup, and they go on to explain Explain that the perfumed simple syrup is created by a a Parisian perfumer for the uh, for the Silencio Club. So they uh, they distill um, orris violet and whiskey lactone to create a perfume for this club. I can't do that. Uh, the third one is uh based on an ounce and two-thirds of royal salute 21 year old blend which is an extremely expensive crown royal blend i've had it it's great but it's like 260 dollars a bottle nobody's make- making a cocktail out of that that's ridiculous the the next one includes the following things. Fresh rhubarb juice, um, nigori umeshu, a wonderful unfiltered plum liqueur, and bad dog sarsaparilla bitters. Um, Nobody has those things. So, uh, what what I did instead is I went with the Oval number 5, which is a cricket-inspired play on a Pimm's Cup. Um, Because one thing I do have in my life um, is uh, kaffir lime leaf-infused vodka. Um, I... Came into some into possession of some leaves, and I used them to infuse some vodka a while back. Um, we're not saying kefir lime anymore because it's a, a slur, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. But I forget what we're saying instead, so I apologize. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I had I had some leaf infused vodka around, uh, and I was able to make, based on guesswork, even though they didn't provide a recipe, this cordial, which is a ginger, lemongrass, lemon, and sugar cordial. And uh, so the drink is kaffir lime leaf-infused absolute vodka, ginger, lemongrass, lemon and sugar cordial, and fresh lemon juice, um, served tall in a highball glass. So, that's what I've been drinking uh, during this podcast. The the Oval Number 5 as uh, as initiated at Silencio, um, as, as sort of a Pimm's Cup, kind of an afternoon sipper. Um, and it's perfectly lovely, but Making that cordial required having tartaric acid around and um, knowing how to make a cordial from scratch. And I don't really recommend anybody try to make any of these Silencio drinks at home for all the reasons I just mentioned. You're probably better off going to Paris after midnight or um, scoring yourself a membership one way or another to go to Silencio. Um, And uh, this has been Ken's Beverage Corner. That made me feel a lot better about
0: having spent, whatever, 21 euros on that drink. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, there was some obscene, never mind the absinthe, there was some obscene ingredient in it that you weren't going to be able to get elsewhere, I promise. Got you, got you.
1: Okay, so I've got two things I want, or or I don't mean to interrupt your flow, Ken, if there's more of the Beverage Corner to come. Okay, so there are two things about the Club Silencio scene that I'm interested in. Uh, The first is the red curtains, which appear, I believe, only at the very end of the movie— Uh, when we go back to the theater and we see the red curtains appear on the stage, and of course we've seen those curtains before in Twin Peaks and The Return and Fire Walk with Me, we also see them in Lost Highway. In Lost Highway, what's his name? The dude, the musician. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm losing it here. Yeah, Lost Highway. Bill Pullman. Bill Pullman. Whatever the actor when as he goes down the hallway in the scene that appears to be around about when he leads to the murder of his wife, he's looking down the hallway. I think he's just had like a series of phone calls that suggest that his wife's been unfaithful to him. And we see those red curtains at the end of the hallway. Um, So I'm I'm curious as to what those red curtains, if you guys have any thoughts at all, uh, mean and their significance in uh, this part of Mulholland drive.
0: I always took it. I mean, you know, I mean, on some level, I just feel like Lynch loves red curtains aesthetically and visually, Yeah, yeah. but I also always took it as like in his work is like this, you know, indication of these liminal spaces and this borderlands between kind of two worlds, you know, like usually a physical space or medical physical space, but it's somewhere where reality is going to distort, bend, break down, you know, something like that. That's the way I always kind of read it.
3: Yeah, and here, putting it at the end and echoing no I Banda, right, um, seems to just acknowledge the artificiality, just seems to say, look, this is is all a a play, this is all something that's being presented for your enjoyment. It's like... um, Uh, I was just reading that the first version or the second version of A Star is Born, they've made A Star is Born like four times in Hollywood already, and apparently they're making it again. Um, But the first one with sound, maybe, um, included a shot of the last page of the film script as the last shot in the movie in an effort to be like, look, all this dramatic stuff happened, but it's still just a movie, right? I kind of take the curtains at the end of, of Mulholland Drive that same way, to be just another nod at the artifice of the whole thing.
1: Kyle, well, as the expert on colors, there's obviously a lot of blue yeah. in Club Silencio. Um, what what do you take for that blue, and then what do you take for, for that in terms of the context? contrast yeah
2: I mean curtains. I honestly don't know I mean I agree with Jeff's interpretation on the on the red curtains I mean I think it it does indicate sort of what he's describing which again I think probably bolsters the theory y'all are y'all are advocating um and certainly we saw them that way in every time they appeared in in Twin Peaks as far as the blue I I don't again I, I'm not sure what that denotes I mean we've got blue hair um which is itself you know a little bit a little bit unconventional um you know from basically the person who's in the what I think of as the Lady Dido role in, in Club Silencio. I'm glad to hear that it may have been the same theater because I certainly certainly took it that way when I was, when I was watching it. But um, beyond that, the, the colors, I, I couldn't begin to tell you. Having spent 25 years trying to figure out the color scheme and the, the red light uh, and the green light on, on the uh, traffic light in Twin Peaks and never succeeding in doing it, I have no idea.
3: Just to be clear, Kyle is an expert on traffic light colors, but blue, blue is going to throw in Yeah, for blue, a I, 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 I got nothing. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the, the, so I, I'm interested in the blue and I'm interested in the woman with the blue hair who says Silencio, who you, you kind of set as a sort of Senorita Dido character. But it's interesting because we don't – Senorita Dido could have – blue hair because right. all of the shots right. you see her are in black and white. She doesn't appear in color. She just holds a golden ball at one point. But yeah, who 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 is the woman with the blue hair uh, on the balcony who says Silencio at the end? Because she's certainly right. significant in some way.
3: Well, I think it's significant that she has blue hair and the box that forms a sort of tesseract or gateway between two worlds is is that same color blue. I, I think Dido is a good... Um, uh, catch by by Kyle there because she does seem like she's part of this otherworldly group. She's she could be in some lodge somewhere, right?
1: She, she's much older than Senorita Dido, Dido in terms of her. Oh, I don't mean stuff. that they're
3: literally the same. Just um, that they yeah. have a similar. Right, Dido right. doesn't.
1: No, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But the, and no.
0: the only other person who says silencio in the film is you know, uh, sort of when I guess Rita wakes up and she's, you know, before they go to silencio and she's almost possessed by it. Right. Right. She's like going like silencio, man, about like saying the things she'll hear later on. So, um, yeah. And I think some people have read if you, especially if you buy the kind of interpretation, you know, uh, that we've kind of talked about the standard one, that this is sort of her knowing that she's going to die, you know, that like silencio is going to mean, you know, her death and I don't know. So, um, but yeah, I, I never known who that woman was, Jr. and I always was satisfied with the mystery of it, but I guess I did think she was some sort of Lodge um, spirit, I guess, or, or lodged, you know, whatever. Uh, 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 some sort of metaphysical presence
1: well, I, who... I actually... Yeah. But I mean, if she's... Okay. Great. I've got something. I've got something. So, here's something. Who... Could... Perhaps this woman, have we ever seen a character in a David Lynch work appear uh, alternatively with blue hair and red hair? I don't know. Diane? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Diane. Diane appears with blue hair and red hair. Aunt Ruth is shown as having red hair. So perhaps this is Aunt Ruth in some reflection where she has blue hair, Uh, assuming that as I Kind of think there may be some sort of dichotomy between blue and
0: yeah, red. Yeah, although the weirdest, the
3: weirdest, Coco
0: the weirdest is thing for me, I was gonna say, is it Cookie or Coco? Coco, Coco,
1: oh, co-
3: well, Coco, and too, yeah, she's dressed right in here. bright red in the humiliation no. scene, and I think in blue when she first meets Betty. And the in no, movies. I'm not,
0: I'm not talking about Coco, I'm talking about Cookie, the guy with the white mustache. Oh, yeah, who tells Adam Kesher <laughs> that his credit cards don't work. He's also involved, he's like a stagehand at Club Silencio.
1: Oh, that's right. But wait, right. oh yeah. Speaking of mustaches, who is the who is the guy standing behind, um, the arm in his room? Do you remember that guy with like a weird mustache? He, I don't think he does anything.
3: You're talking about another lodge denizen of some sort in the return.
1: No, I'm talking about Mahal and I mean, Room. Um, when yes.
3: Oh, are you?
0: Oh, that guy. Oh,
1: yeah. There's you're a, talking about Mr. Roke. Yeah. The weird guy
0: behind Mr. Roke, him. Mr. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about him. He just Mr. Roke. He seemed like one of those, yeah, yeah just kind of people like in the background, like in blue velvet. Yeah, you know, just, they're like, just like, like a
3: heavy. But. If we're doing the contrast between blue and red, my mind always sets off the blue-haired woman in Silencio against Rebecca Del Rio, who is colored with extremely bright red lipstick. Right? I mean, her mouth is like a a heart as she sings that song, Um, and she's got like the orange, like the very bright orange mascara, like she's in a Mad Max movie or something, like the really bright makeup around her eyes. And so she seems to have been colored bright red in opposition to the blue of uh, of the blue-haired lady. And I'm sure if these people are otherworldly spirits lodge denizens whatever we want to call them it's significant that she you know collapses at the end of the song just as betty is like vibrating or seizing up or whatever
1: yeah her eye makeup reminds me of jen and the holograms
3: oh totally uh, the misfits you mean yeah
1: yeah more more so yeah. the misfits yeah that's right okay number eight did talent alone help camilla obviously not um well which camilla right because right? Well, let's go through them both. The first one gets the job because a bunch of mobsters say that Adam Kesher has to use her, not because she's better, although she does a good job uh, on the audition. The second Camilla uh, has an affair with the director, right? So that both of those Camillas suggest that they were not uh, helped by talent alone. And you can see in Diane's fantasy of being Betty – She's super talented, and she gets to explain away her failure to be more successful by Camilla's uh being picked as a result of this conspiracy. And at the same time, you know, she's deeply resentful towards uh, Camilla uh, sexually humiliating her and also being more successful.
2: So then do you think that her uh, tied to that, you know she's she's there. Uh, at the at the audition, having just come from the George Hamilton audition and being there watching Adam picking this other girl and him looking longingly at her like, hey, this is who I really want to pick. And then she has to she has to leave because she has somewhere else to be because she has to help Rita just uh, take Rita to to Diane's apartment. Um, I mean, is that do you think part of her? Excuse to herself that, uh, you know, I could have, hey, maybe I could have changed his mind even with these mobsters. He, he really wanted to pick me anyway, but I had to go. It was me being selfless and helping out Rita over here. Um, she was the one who needed my help rather than later at the end when she's talking about how, you know, Camilla has been kind to me and put, you know, giving me small parts in in her movies and, and you know, thrown me a bone. Um, she's reversing the roles there.
1: Yeah, I think to some extent. And I think also there's a real significance to the handing of the picture and saying, this is the girl. Diane cannot accept the guilt of uh, what she did, which is literally taking out a picture saying, this is the girl and you need to kill her. And so she's transferred uh, responsibility in her mind for that to this uh, deep conspiracy that was actually the cause of... This is the girl being presented, but then she's turned it into flipped it around so that it's not even a murder now. It's just someone getting selected for a part.
2: So do we do we know that she actually dies? I mean, we know she hires a hitman um, and then she winds up killing herself. But I mean, what we see of this guy, he's a pretty damn inept hitman.
3: (laughs) Or she, 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 gets, she <laughs> it, or she <laughs> yeah,
0: makes another vacuum instead of Camilla or she makes him in her kind of fantasy to like, you know,
3: make it like the fact right, yeah, to
1: right, excuse right. herself. Yeah, right. I mean, I, the way what I would say to that, Kyle, is in as much as she gets the key and policemen have been calling repeatedly for her. Right. OK, it, fair it happened. It happened.
3: Yeah. OK, fair enough. Fair enough i I think it's significant to uh in it to go back to my gildish spiel for just a minute that like um Diane's humiliation is complete, not when um camilla is announcing her engagement to Adam but when camilla has the blonde who's whose name is Camilla in the fantasy world, uh, come over and whisper in her ear and then sort of give her a quick little, you know, um, tongue kiss situation. And uh, the fact that it's, it's not just that she's chosen Adam, it's not just that she's, you know, been successful and gotten this part and gotten engaged, but that she's found another blonde Right, um, is 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 really um, really the kicker, and and that does take me back to Gilda, where um, Johnny, it's not clear. There's a lot of homoerotic stuff between him and the owner of the casino, who um, brings Gilda back into his life and marries her. And so, it's not clear whether he's more attracted to the casino owner Milland or whether he's more attracted to Gilda. But either way, right, he's sort of obsessed with both of them. And Gilda humiliates him not by sleeping with her own husband, his sort of crush object, but by catting around with other men and being unfaithful. And then there's this like, super weird um, line where um, after the casino owner has faked his own death, where in voiceover, uh, Johnny says she wasn't faithful to him in life, but she was going to be in death, which like doesn't make any sense and is sort of psychotic, right? Um, But it's a similar dynamic where the, the humiliation is happening by proxy in this weird way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I viewed it as like double humiliation. Not only did Camilla leave Diane for Adam Kesher, uh, she's not even willing to keep Diane around as a sidekick. Right, exactly. She's got uh, she's got another broad for that. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay, I think that covers uh, the talent of the two Camillas. Um, number nine. Uh, note the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies, and you know my theory on what the the man behind Winkies, who's frequently referred to as a bum by David Lynch, and I, I don't know what what the uh, how it's addressed in the actual script, but I think Winky's represents like the deepest, darkest id of Diane, and he he the the bum is there uh, and represents her sort of cataclysmic choice to kill Camilla, uh, and it's interesting because after the hit is settled, the appearance of Bum monster figure is not nearly as upsetting or jarring as when Duncan Todd, you know, had his heart attack when he saw the same character. And I think it's the idea that this is just, it doesn't seem nearly as intimidating, uh, yet at the same time, he's somehow connected to the box and these terrifying senior citizens uh, who are terrifying yet tiny uh, coming out of the box. So, and then after Diane dies, the monster's picture sort of fades in as her room is smoking up. And then the face fades out and Diane or Betty's face fades in. And, you know, it's interesting because the, the actual actor who played this character was a woman, Uh, although I don't think she was credited for it. But I do think that that was supposed to be a female character, not a male character, and that it it ultimately represented uh, a facet of of, of Diane. Well,
3: that makes sense when you look at how similar the mop of hair and sort of grease smudges are to the way that Rita looks when she's cutting off her own hair in the sink in despair. Like, there's a super close-up on this mop of hair covering her, and I think it's meant to echo that... um, Dumpster creature bum thing or whatever, um, but I mean it's a it's a proto woodsman, right? We all we all sort of thought of it as a woodsman.
2: Right. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely, clearly, no clearly. Doubt. Clearly.
1: no doubt. No doubt.
3: It's- maybe it's,
2: maybe it's, if it's, since it's a woman,
3: maybe it's Day. maybe it's Judy. Yeah, there you go. It's amazing what Lynch is able to do with a little bit of makeup and some dramatic music and some careful editing. Like that first scene with, uh, Fischler or Duncan Todd, if you want, um, uh, it's in broad daylight in LA yeah. and I've seen this movie right. half a dozen times and I still jump every single time. It's one of the
0: most terrifying, it's one of the scariest, like, like. Things in any movie I know of like any, any it's Lynch, so film. it's it's so scary. Yeah. And even though I've seen it, like I've probably seen this movie like 10 or 12 times. Yeah. It's still, it's still terrifying. And I love that it comes so soon in the film, you know, and it just like, yeah, it, it's, oh, it's, it's nightmarish, truly nightmarish.
3: It's brilliant. I mean, this movie has more in the way of horror than a lot of uh, Lynch's films, although maybe not as much as like fire walk with me or something, um, or some parts of the return. Um, Uh, As Kyle mentioned, and as I think we've talked about uh, offline and prepping, it's also definitely Lynch's sexiest movie, right? Oh, clearly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: But I think like so much of the – I mean, that's just like – it's almost like some – I don't know. I'm trying to think of another film that has something like that where it's like, you know, a dream really crossing over into reality in like the most horrible way you can imagine. And I can't think of anyone doing it that concisely, you know what I mean, with the same – you know, like weird precision is like the, the winky sequence, you know, like that's sort of like, you have a terrible nightmare. It would be so awful if it happened exactly the same way that he has the same dream, you know, and that it just, it's, uh, it, it, I mean, how long is that sequence? Like three minutes long. It's like, it's, uh, It's it's great. Well, some
3: elements of that and some of the like uh detective y parts, like if we'd if we'd gotten more of like the Forster uh, character and the bright blue and red colors are kind of Argento-y. Like you you could see Argento pulling off something with some of these elements. But mostly, yeah. I mean this is this is Lynch's ballpark.
1: Yeah. Okay. Number ten, where is Aunt Ruth? She did. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I mean, I think she never existed, right? Uh, Diane lives in this apartment. Maybe she's traded apartments, whatever, but she lives in this this complex, um, and she's reinvented the complex in her mind to be a more benign place presided over by a loving sort of a, a landlady figure, um, and with her aunt as the benevolent owner of the apartment instead of her living in squalor. So you think Diane is
1: ruthless? <laughs>
3: yes, very good.
1: I think she's the woman with the blue hair in the balcony.
0: So, and she's uh, the one, like is she, and she's welcoming her um, niece into the land of the dead, kind of.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe. Can um, I reach? Okay, what? Uh, go, can I reach you guys? What Lynch has to uh, say just, about just,
0: these clues? This is from the Chris Rodley yeah, Lynch yeah, on yeah, Lynch. That, okay, so Rodley asks Lynch. This also may be the first movie ever in which the even the ag campaign in the UK at least included clues. To unlock the mystery of the film, was it your idea to do that? And Lynch's response, no. Here's the way it happened. The French distributor was part of Canal Plus, and I'd talk to them more than I would talk to the American distributor, even though the movie came out in America first. So one day, Pierre Edelman calls me and says, David, we're thinking about some sort of thing where we do 10 clues to the meaning of Mulholland Drive. And I said, Pierre, you know, but just for the heck of it, let me think about it. They had to be genuine clues, but they also had to be pretty obscure. So if you had a certain take on the movie, the clues would be obvious. And if you had another take on it, they'd make you think, and maybe you'd see it again in a different way. They said it kind of worked. So I guess that's why they made their way to England. I'm against that kind of thing, but they were pretty abstract kinds of clues.
1: Okay. Uh, any any final thoughts on, on the movie? Anything else we want to talk about? I kind of... Jeff, I know you wanted to talk about TV. Yeah,
0: I mean, I just was sort of... Like I said, uh, watching it again, and I think I'd read, um, there's a really, uh, I think I talked about it on last year when we were talking about The Return, I think at some point, but there's a really good book on Lynch, short book that came out uh, a couple of years ago called David Lynch, The Man from Another Place by Dennis Lim. Uh, it has a really terrific chapter on Mulholland Drive, and one of the best things I've read about the film, and I reread that, and you know, it has some good stuff on the production history. But I was just kind of thinking... You know, also, as we all did watching this movie, you know, in the light of Twin Peaks, The Return, and I was just kind of thinking about Lynch and kind of TV. I mean, as everyone kind of says about this, this movie, it's definitely his, you know, on some level, a love letter to kind of L.A., also a kind of bitter, you know, spurned, uh, you know, uh, lament for, I guess, Hollywood and the, the you know, uh, the, the Hollywood's, I don't know, production system. Um, but I was kind of thinking about Lynch's attraction to TV as a medium, which he talks about a lot with kind of Twin Peaks and as a way in which he could tell a story that never ended, you know, uh, and that uh, he wrote this first as a pilot for a TV show. And even though what had happened with him with Twin Peaks, I think had been so obviously, um, painful for him uh and you can look at the last episode of season two as well as twin peaks fire walk with me and then the terrible reaction at twin peaks fire walk with me which has like leads to him not producing a movie you know for kind of five years and probably like the one one of the worst stretches of his career something that obviously seemed very painful for him and i i think it's interesting that he even took the risk of getting involved in television again, you know, and kind of putting himself out there uh, with this. And it it does seem like it was painful for him, but I was, I guess I was kind of thinking about on some level, I think why Lynch loves TV as a medium is that it's this way in which to tell a story and to like tell a mysterious kind of story that never has to be solved. Um, But I think some of his best work, I think most people probably would say, I'm not sure how you want to divide up early and kind of late Lynch. I've always kind of done it after kind of twin peaks. I think with lost highway on, obviously some new era of his career has kind of started, um, I guess, at least formally stylistically in, in terms of his um, thematic concerns too. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess I, w- I was thinking about, I, th- that, He's drawn to this abstraction. He's drawn to these open ended, non linear kind of narratives. But I think there's, he works at his best, I think, sometimes. And I feel like the, you know, having to make Mulholland Drive um, a feature film and kind of finish it, um, as well as I think the partnership with kind of Mark Frost that we talked about at length kind of last year. And I sort of feel like they reached some perfection of their partnership in Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. Uh, but, it seems like when he has, he can't just stretch things out endlessly, um, but has to kind of end them in some way. It seems like it provides this really helpful, creative kind of tension for him. And I think it comes out of, I think that's where his best work kind of comes out of, where his natural impulses bump up against something um, or kind of tested in some way. Um, and I think Mulholland Drive, and for me, like I said, I would, I would probably say Twin Peaks as a whole, but especially Twin Peaks Return, seem to be some of the best examples of this. So I was just wondering if you guys had thought about that or you know, had anything to say.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I thought about is it's interesting to think about this movie because one could take the perspective that, like, how is this movie anything other than a hack job? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then It was never intended to be the right. movie that you saw except after the fact. It's not like some sort of Stanley Kubrick or, or Nolan production where every detail was mapped out from the beginning to the end and it was produced as a whole. That's not what this is, but it's, a, it's incredible to me that it is that coherent and good in spite of the fact that it was by no means created to be the thing that it is. Uh It kind of, uh in a way, m- represents how... Fleeting this idea of coherence uh, from ex-ante might be in putting things together, at least for David Lynch. Uh, but I do agree with you, uh, Jeff, that, you know, everybody needs a good editor and, and probably David Lynch more than anybody else. And that a lot of his best work is when he's uh, put into some kind of constraint to, to some extent. I mean – Uh, I wouldn't have liked the return as much. I think if anyone other than David Lynch directed every episode, uh, I don't, and I can't say. You know, we're going to talk about Inland Empire, which is the absolute opposite extreme, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and where that gets us, but you know, it's it's remarkable to me. But
0: uh, but I would still say that there's a a huge difference between Inland Empire and Twin Peaks: The Return. Yes, you know, just in terms of right. Yeah, yeah.
1: totally agree with you that. I mean, you mean because of Frost uh, primarily? Yes. Yeah, because of Frost. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, for me, it, it is truly remarkable that this movie is so good, given that it was a sort of after the fact post production, not, you know, uh, it's definitely a lot better than the uh, European edit of the pilot.
3: <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah, it- of Twin Peaks. Yeah,
3: it's it's remarkable in that way how how he turned these circumstances into something great. But I I agree with the needs and editor point and might even be willing to take it a little further than you two were. But I mean, I love for example the last episode of the original run of Twin Peaks where, you know, not only was there a time constraint, like we're we're ending this thing, uh but also Lynch hadn't been involved for a while. He'd gone away and he'd made Wild at Heart and he'd left it in other people's hands and whatever else, right? Um and uh, and he comes back and just produces on its own, an extremely compelling hour of television, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I I like that point. I think it's a good.
2: The, well, there's there's a, and I agree with it. I like that point too. And and there's a, uh, a thing in the uh, uh, the wrapped in plastic uh, book that Jr. got me to buy from telling me about it in the first episode of this podcast Uh, and there's there's an interview and David Lynch has a quotation in there where he says here's the deal, something isn't finished until it's finished. When you start focusing on something it gets kind of an energy going and things begin to flow but ideas don't come when you just snap your fingers, they come along out of who knows what but there's this focus that pulls them I think. I always say you should always be aware you might think your script is complete but it may not be. There may be opportunities opportunities and ideas coming that are so valuable, you have to stay feeling it and focused all the time. Lots of things will start talking to you. It's just that way. It's got to feel correct to be finished. You've just got to be with it. And and I think there's a lot of that in this, that, you know, he started this with a very different vision from what he ended with and and there's this dissatisfaction in the middle of having to pare it down to something he didn't want it to be and doesn't want us to see and then he went in a completely different way and said okay what can this be removed from those constraints and removed from that context and and came up with something fantastic um this wasn't finished until it was finished and and he let it be that rather than saying as 99% of the directors out there would okay this is a pilot i made that didn't get picked up it eh, could have been okay but that's that's over that's done let's ditch that and let's move on to the next thing and instead he said no i i, I can work with this there's more to this there, this is incomplete which is essentially what he wound up doing with with the return of saying all right it's been 25 yeah, years yeah. This was unfinished, and no, I'm not going to tie it up in a neat little bow the way some people like. Kyle want him to, but I am going to go back and 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 do something beautiful that could not have been foreseen. You know, it's like the Compson appendix to *The Sound and the Fury*. Faulkner couldn't have intended that ending when he wrote uh, *The Sound and the Fury*. He couldn't have come up with the idea of Caddy winding up in Nazi Germany because when he wrote *The Sound and the Fury*, the Nazis hadn't come to power in Germany yet. So these are things that had to have developed. Over time and just being with it and and letting it go be what it was going to be. And, and I think people should take a lesson from that artistically and otherwise.
3: Yeah, but like the flip side of letting an idea just germinate and develop until it ends in Lynch's mind is like that uh, who the fuck cares how long a scene is. Right. Like, right. I, sure. So sure. The, the positive side is something wonderful, some kind of miracle like, uh, like this thing or most of Twin Peaks, The Return. The, the negative is something like, I don't know, the, the scenes with the random roadhouse characters in The Return. It's like, I'm just going to spin out these bits of a narrative forever and they're not tied to anything. They're not going anywhere.
0: You're t- still tied into this bourgeois idea that a narrative has to go somewhere.
3: <laughs> well, let me point out that the apex of David Lynch's art is still the five minutes of sweeping. So I'm on board with that.
0: Okay. Also, sp- speaking of that, something I found out in watching all the special features on the Criterion Blu-ray of Mulholland Drive is that um, it's an interview with Jack Fisk, who the, was the production designer for um, uh, Mulholland Drive, who I think also worked on the Straight Story, but had known David Lynch since like nineteen sixty one. They like went to like high school together or something. Um but he said that when they were shooting Straight Story, uh he was just looking around and he was like Lynch is so involved on set. He looked in like Lynch was like sweeping the street uh at some point. And then he said at some point in his life, Lynch had a job as a sweeper uh and takes great pleasure in it. Uh
3: oh, that's um, and perfect. This was,
0: I this this in this and this was recorded before that's so great. Her, so.
3: I'm glad I gave you a segue to that. Sweeping that's is fantastic. important. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Guys, as a production note, I've got one. I, I just came across this really cool theory about the movie and the what's going on and Aunt Ruth. Do you? But I, if we want to end now, that's fine too. I can just link it. Uh, what do you guys think?
3: I'm, let's hear it. I'm happy to hear. It. Can I can I say one or two little ephemeral things before you say it?
1: Yeah, 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 go ahead.
3: Um, I just want to mention two things. One, uh, I think it's not a coincidence that there is a blonde named Betty in this movie who is like uh, vacillating between love and hate with a brunette and going on various Nancy Drew type adventures with her. We know that Twin Peaks The Return takes place in the same universe as Archie Comics because of and Amick and because of uh, Pop Steiner in episode 8. So I think that uh, Lynch is into Archie Comics the same way he's into like traffic safety and uh, Bob's big boy. Um, and I think that's significant and vertigo. vertigo. Um, and uh, I also just want to shout out quickly the, the musical numbers, uh, the I've told every little star and the 16 reasons why, I've loved, why I love you. We haven't had a chance to talk about them, and that's fine, but they are spectacular. It's the sort of thing that Lynch was born to make, right? It's it's like nostalgic for an era that really, really means something to him, and he films it so lovingly. And I didn't know shit about either of those two songs, but they are brilliant, and I adore them. I mean, one of them is by Connie Stevens, who, if you had mentioned to me, I would have just been like, that's somebody my grandmother grandparents liked or something i don't know right um and uh the song itself was like disowned um the 16 reasons was like disowned by connie stevens she was like it was a song for 12 year olds whatever it made me some money um but i think they're brilliant i think those those set pieces are amazing um and they're probably my favorite thing not related to silencio in the yeah
1: um,
0: yeah no, I totally agree, Ken. And it, it's like, I think the same way I talked about in episode eight, like the, the about the radio station, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that the woodsman shows up at like, there's this deep, like Lynch and like fifties kind of like Americana, like th- that felt like purposefully chosen, mm-hmm. like in this really loving, like attentive kind of way, just the decors and everything about those, that 50 sequence at the radio station. And the same thing, I, I watched this movie, I think, um, uh, with my wife last year, it was her first time kind of seeing it. And then she rewatched part of it with me last week. as I was getting ready for the podcast. We were watching this sequence together and I was telling her, I was like this movie within the movie. I was like, I wish David Lynch would direct just like a straightforward fifties kind of musical. Yeah. Cause I was like, I would want, this is like my dream kind of movie that I would watch. It's just that like, it's, it's, it's amazing the way he kind of shoots these, these sequences and the, the, the feel that he has for, you know, um, Girl group music. I don't know what you want to call it. Sur- the, the the surreal, you know, kind of like almost hysterical innocence of like fifties, like uh, like black like
1: pop. He music
3: should make so. the story of the Ronettes, is what he should make, right? I mean, Phil Spector is a very Lynchian sort of a character.
1: Oh <laughs> that, yeah. yeah,
3: that would be incredible.
1: Yeah. yeah, that that that's a there. No doubt that Lynch should probably do a movie just about Phil Spector. So I found this theory that's kind of interesting, and it's it's from. Mulholland drive.net. And the theory is Diane's dream is a replay of her sexual abuse. And I'm not, I, basically, the, the way it goes is like this. So the last clue is where is Aunt Ruth? Well, she appears in several different places. She's packing up her bags, and t- someone's carrying her bags to a taxi at the beginning of the movie at 1612 Havenhurst. She's a well dressed woman with red hair and a scarf on. And then at the airport, when Betty is saying goodbye to the aged couple, we see the same well-dressed red-headed lady with a scarf and a man accompanying her carrying her bags walk by. Uh, And then when uh, Betty and Rita are playing Nancy Drew at Sierra Bonita, we see a well-dressed red-headed lady with a scarf with a man carrying her bags to a limo. So those are the three appearances of, of Aunt Ruth. And this author of this theory basically says that she believes that Diane had been sexually abused as a child, probably by a family member. And that, uh, for some reason it it must've been Diane's uncle or father and aunt Ruth knew about it. Diane threatened to tell someone about what's going on and aunt Ruth couldn't bear the secret to be let out. So she makes an agreement between the two of them. If Diane keeps quiet, she can have some or all of her aunt's money when she's gone. And this is what silencio is about. This is the silence. And that her – Diane's agreement is not just for the money, but it's also because Aunt Ruth has put things into her mind to make her feel guilty, things that come up in her uh, audition scene. If you're trying to blackmail me, it's not going to work. And what about you? What will your dad think about you? Uh, And so the constant appearance of this Aunt Ruth-like character represents either Ruth's unwillingness to help Diane at her time of need or Diane's unwillingness to accept the fact that they had this contract and understanding – Uh, that overlaid the trauma Uh, Coco Coco says you and your aunt probably had an understanding. So here's the key. And Diane is given the key to aunt Ruth's stuff because aunt Ruth is dead. Just like Diane doesn't is given another key because Camilla is dead. This answers the other clue about who gives a key and why. Um, And the author notes that how could two families have an understanding quote understanding in a Lynch film where there's not some sort of darker meaning, maybe not so much in the straight story, but even maybe there, and, so the, and then the idea that Aunt Ruth is in hell. And they get to this point because there's a flyer on the lamppost where Betty and Rita get into the black cab to go to Club Silencio. And the only word you can read on the flyer is in block letters, hell. Uh, and then uh, the idea is that Diane is giving herself a glimpse of hell or what she perceives hell to be. And in the parking lot of Club Silencio, there's a figure eight, which of course sideways represents infinity. Once they're in the the club, the author of this theory says the magician represents the devil, or at least Diane's perception of the devil. Uh, He's kind of just a a stereotype like the cowboy. Uh, And he speaks in three different languages and he has a goatee, like most standard depictions of the devil and a large wand, which could be his pitchfork. And when he says, listen in a and the thunderous sound fills the room and there's the blue light. This is the idea of Diane's silence being broken. And she's terrified with fear and has goes into convulsions but also feels somewhat relieved as if a weight had been lifted. And he also says that the reason the magician is speaking both English and Spanish and French is because he's speaking to Betty for English, Rita for Spanish and Aunt Ruth in French. And I'm glad that this author pointed this out because it had been bugging me. You recall that in her bathroom is a book called, uh, to Paris, uh, which is a guide to the art of French decoration, which makes aunt Ruth associated with, France, I guess. So, yeah. And then the last part of it is that the blue-haired lady at the top is Aunt Ruth in hell, uh, who's been confronted with the guilt of requiring this pact of silence. Uh, and, you know, as part of that change or reversal or coming down, she's got blue hair. So, anyway, we'll put a link in the in the notes, but I, I thought that was kind of interesting and certainly not something Don't I thought of before.
0: Isn't there one other time that Aunt Ruth shows up and it's sort of after the club silencio scene yes, and they yes, like yes, drop yes. the box right. and she comes That's right. in.
1: That's right. She comes into the room after the box is dropped and kinda of looks around puzzlingly. puzzling the, and it's and everyone's
0: a, gone. Yeah, and in yeah.
1: and that scene there's a weird camera perspective. You you feel like the camera is a person in there watching what's going on. Yeah and, and seeing That's her one of the weirdest the
0: scenes in the whole movie. Yeah. yeah. It
1: really reminded me of um The Shining. Uh, in terms of the, the, the camera work in that particular scene, because, you know, so much of The Shining is, seems to be shot from the perspective of the hotel.
2: Well, and, and it's interesting you mentioned the word understanding, and we talked about this with The Elephant Man. and I think we see it in Aunt Ruth's yeah, apartment. Yeah. There are a couple of times where the word understand or understanding is used in situations where the people using the term clearly do not actually understand what what they're seeing and, and hearing. Yeah, that's right.
3: Yeah, I don't entirely buy this theory. I mean, I I don't buy it at all, really. But uh, but it adds some interesting little shades of things to stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I am I'm, I'm grateful to it for parsing all the Aunt Ruth appearances and and putting some of these ideas in my head. I think it requires you to do an awful lot of work outside of the evidence the movie actually provides, which is why I push back. But uh, but you know, it's cool. Who am I yeah, to call I, I, bullshit on a theory about a David Lynch work?
1: <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think the most interesting bit is the is the idea in which she is working through some sort of past trauma in this audition yes, scene. Yes,
3: definitely. Definitely um, that is the most interesting yeah. bit of it. And, and the fact that, like, there's some significance to seeing Aunt Ruth in these scenes where I hadn't actually really registered anything at all, right? So it gives those yeah. scenes a new layer of meaning. It gives the George Hamilton stuff a new layer of meaning. Um, and it's yeah. cool.
0: It's one of those theories. It's, it's like the, if there was a room 237 documentary. Yeah, <laughs> about, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Drive, it has the same feel. Of, since you mentioned the shining too, it made me think of it, but like, yeah, it seems along with those where it, where it accounts for like one or two things you've never thought about right. really well, but then taken as a whole, it's sometimes on shaky ground. Right. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, I guess what, 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 what is, I, and I'm not on board with the theory, theory either. I think the general, consensus about what the movie is pretty solid, but what's satisfying is the, the explanation for Silencio. Because, I mean, in the, under the standard explanation, that doesn't really mean anything. Like, what, yeah. why, what, what's going on there? I mean, I, I get the idea of this is fake, it's not real, you're hearing these things, but they're recorded. Uh, I, all of that makes sense. But, you know, the, the, the sort of pivotal, central notion of silence is tough to really parse out.
3: Yeah, th- that me. specific aspect of it, yes. But I think it does work really well as just a bridge between the two portions of the movie, realities, however you want to look at it. I was just looking at the English translation of the words to the Rebecca Del Rio song, uh, the Girondo, uh crying. Um, and it's got this stuff, right? For a while, I was doing just fine, smiling again, and then I saw you, and I touched your hand, and we spoke, and then your goodbye made me feel all of the pain, right? And then the rest of the song is, you know, like crying, crying, crying. But um, it, it it's perfectly matched to the theme, right? That she was deluding herself into oh, smiling, oh, and then something sure, triggered her. Sure.
1: No, Ken, can, 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 I'm not talking about the Club Silencio scene. I'm talking about the significance of just the word Silencio. Yeah,
3: and the... And the that's, right.
1: w- that's what I'm trying to and understand. And the
3: concept, right? The, the the fact that silence is the animating concept behind that, right?
1: I know. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Does anybody have any final thoughts before we call it at like two and a half hours? I think we're, about, <laughs> we're lo- longer than the film itself at this point, so that's always a good sign.
3: Uh, only if you count our break, because the movie just ended on my screen, and I started
1: when we started, so... Oh, okay. So that's we Oh, come in Well, that's, that's fantastic. Short of the movie, yeah. great. Yeah, exactly. So
2: you can just listen to the podcast while watching the movie. It won't line up with a damn,
3: but it'll still be. It'll, it'll still, you know, the timing. It work certainly out. won't. will be up. nice. Uh, I do hope this silence. <laughs> I do hope like three or four people listen to this and it encourages them to watch the movie again. Because man, just watching it again after like I don't know five or six years or however long it had been, I just I loved it so much. Um, and I think it really, really holds up as an as an element of Lynch's work. It's great. Yeah, there's, it's a, a great, great movie. movie. I loved it
1: this is going to be a two-part episode. Of course, if you sync the first part and the second part and play them simultaneously, everything will be revealed.
2: (laughs) Yes. Right.
0: Can, can, can Kyle and I make an announcement or a plug for our listeners? So Kyle and I have, have written, uh, a chapter, uh, a book chapter that will appear in, uh, something, a book called critical approaches to twin peaks, which will be published in 2019. Uh, and yeah, I think we're, it's in the editorial stages now, but I, I, we've never mentioned it, have we, Kyle?
2: I don't believe that we have, no.
0: Yeah. So some of our listeners might be interested <laughs> at some point, but uh, it's kind of about digital technology and Twin Peaks' return, and we relate it to the process of creating this podcast. So yeah.
1: By the yeah, book. It's
3: super exciting.
1: Yeah, we're, we're very excited. That is extremely cool. Definitely. Okay. Well, do you guys have anything to plug? Yeah.
3: <laughs> Get a get a new mixtape dropping.
1: Uh. No, I I really don't. I, I've got nothing. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, we're gonna cut out all the part about my hangnail. Um, and sorry. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna edit all this been, bullshit uh, out. That's right. Uh, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Um, we're not exactly sure what our next uh, movie is gonna be. At some point, Cowboy
2: this, and the Frenchman.
1: Yes, we're just gonna do Cowboy and the Frenchman. Um, and rabbits, that's, uh, that the, that's what's coming up next or not. So we're going to see know.
2: cowboy and the Frenchman twice if we're good. And once if we're bad, is that how that yeah, that's works? Right. That's I'm right. game for that's it. True. I don't care. Well,
1: I'll do it. Once if we do good. And once if we do bad,
0: I realized I forgot to talk about Billy Ray Cyrus and how he oh, says Hannah Montana exists because of, um, Mulholland Drive driving David Lynch. So, but maybe that's just something our, 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 uh,
1: you mean because he was find in this out movie? out for themselves. I mean, I think it's. I mean, he basically said David Lynch introduced Satan to my family. Yeah, uh, Yeah. is is his theory? So this
2: is the man who made the deal with the devil to have a career because of "Achy Breaky Heart," the single worst song ever recorded in the history of music, and this son of a bitch is blaming David (laughs) Lynch for bringing. You think Miley Ray Cyrus isn't the product of a deal with Satan? And this man's blaming. I, I hate this
3: man worse than Balthazar Getty. First of all, Balthazar Getty, friend of the podcast. Second of all, uh, there's some Miley's got some bangers, man. Later, Miley Cyrus, there's some good shit.
0: Well, I think he says Lynch cast Billy Ray Cyrus on Mulholland Drive, and that got him a part in the the show Doc, and that's where Miley Cyrus first acted, and then set them on the path, like he says that that led them. Like, were it not for David Lynch, Miley never would have been Hannah Montana.
2: So okay, and that made him what a Blue perfect blue jillion dollars yeah. he made off of putting <laughs> exactly his daughter in this in this stupid show. I mean, yeah. what is Billy Ray Cyrus would be waiting tables if it hadn't been for Hannah Montana? Uh, you're so angry at would Yeah, working at a Winkies, pouring coffee and selling donuts and trying to avoid the the woodsman behind the dumpster on his way out to the car afterward.
1: Clearly David There's Lynch It's just
0: more yeah. irrational people getting angry at are people getting irrationally angry at David Lynch yeah. after the fact. So, D- see yeah.
1: David Lynch should have convinced him to buy his own personal mantra uh from the TM people and then he would have been fine. <laughs> you guys know about that, right? The, about TM, about That you can buy your medication? own mantra. I
3: certainly know about Lynch That's and part TM. of it.
1: That's no that's part of it you you pay like a couple thousand bucks and then you get your own personalized mantra for meditation
0: and i think if he'd paid enough money david lynch or er, would have whispered to him behind a dumpster at winky's achy achy breaky heart and that would have been it no that would have been his mantra and then silencio yeah. end the film silencio cinema i have nothing else i should stop talking yeah that, but I felt like we, I, we couldn't let it in without talking about Billy I'm Ray Cyrus. So. No, I, sure I, the, the, yeah. the Billy
2: Ray Cyrus, though, that was that was mission critical. He's the I'm, key I'm to most pleased the film.
1: The, we've been talking about him, yet we have not talked about anything he did in the movie. So we're going to end yeah, it that. Like yeah, I know. That. That's great. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Good night. Adios.
4: Closing my eyes Until the colors appear And hold oh, me up oh, my Ain't it funny up here To stand in the light Saying I ain't came to Los Angeles Just to die Are you getting a lot of attention now? Are you bleeding in every direction now? Are they covering you up with affection now? Are you getting a lot of attention now? And they told me my eyes. Said they'd never be clear Said to hold on to mine Go make that money out here They told me those lies Just a in from ear to ear They showed me that line you said here is all off of me ain't it fine Are you getting a lot of attention now? Are you bleeding in every direction now are they covering you up with affection now are you getting a lot of attention now? It's how they couple out here And oh me, oh my They called me colored and queer But I looked in their eyes Said I ain't came to Los Angeles, honey Just to die Lot of attention now. Are you bleeding in every direction now? Are they covering you up with affection now? Are you getting a lot of attention now? Are you getting a lot of attention, ain't you now? Are you bleeding in every direction, ain't you? Are they covering you up with affection, ain't they now? Are you getting a lot of attention, ain't you now?